end of the show, Shady Rays wanted to pass on a sweet, sweet deal to our listeners. For a limited time, use code TEAM, capital T-E-A-M, to receive 40% off when you order two or more pairs of sunglasses. Follow the link in our show notes or in our Instagram bio to order yours today. Shady Rays, live hard, we got you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. As usual, I'm always excited for the guests, but this guy is one of my favorite players, and I had a chance to work for him one summer. It was awesome. So he is a U of T Hall of Famer. During his time at U of T, they won the OUA every year he was there. He's a five-time first-team All-Star, four-time All-Canadian. He went on to represent Canada 37 times on the beach. He took a fifth at Pan Am, and now he's running a great company called Team 12 Training out in the Brooklyn area, so look him up. He's coaching for Durham Attack. Please welcome to the show Mike Sleen. Sleener, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I've uh, listened to a few of the uh, previous guests, and I'm looking forward to uh, contributing in some way. Awesome, awesome. Good to have you. I know you're busy. Good to connect schedules. So for people who know you really well, they'll argue with me, but I, I heard rumors, I never got to see you play, that you were just as good, maybe better at basketball than volleyball. So when you were growing up, what made you choose one over the other? Because it sounds like you could have played both at a, at a very high level. Uh, yeah, I grew up as a, as a basketball guy originally. Uh, my dad was a basketball coach. So, you know, from you know, two years old on, I was always around basketball. You know, when I was little, I was a gym rat. My dad would bring me to tournaments, and, you know, I'd walk back and forth between the courts. And every time there was halftime, I'd go out and put on a, like a shooting demonstration and, you know, try to get some attention, which I, I really loved when I was little. And, uh, yeah, shooting was my thing. I just shot, shot, shot. And just as a kid, I was always playing basketball. And so now, even when I run into a lot of, you know, friends from high school or, or acquaintances from high school, you know, they, they always ask me what I'm doing in basketball. And some of them are actually surprised because I play volleyball. So, yeah, it was uh, it was close in about grade twelve or so. I kind of decided I had some opportunities to to play and decided that uh, you know I was going to go the direction of volleyball. I just I like the sport a little bit better and kind of chose to go that route. So I think uh, a lot of our younger listeners will think club volleyball right now, like everybody kind of has access to it. But I think when you were growing up. Not only were there less clubs, but I think age divisions were two years. There wasn't like a 16, 17, 18. It was like uh, 16s, and then you had to make the jump to 18. So what do you remember about playing club, and, and what was your age division like with the, the two groups kind of in one division at the time? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a little bit different, obviously, in the sense that there was not nearly as many teams. And like you said, the you know, juvenile was two years, and then junior was two years. So you're playing with you know kids potentially that were a year older than you. And in my particular situation, you know, I was lucky we had a pretty good local club, or if they weren't that local, it was Ganaraska, which was you know, 45 minute drive or so from uh, the Pickering area. But fortunately I had a few other buddies who would, uh, you know, get in the car with me and uh, go out and join the, uh, the Reed brothers. So, uh, Daryl Reed and Dustin Reed were uh, two of the guys that uh, played out there. Daryl was a year younger than me and Dustin was a year older than me. So I got to play with uh, both of them. And, you know, it was challenging because, uh, you know, the, the year ahead of us was, was very stacked. There was a lot of amazing players in that age group, you know, Paul Dearden's and, uh, you know, Dustin Reed and Jeff Chung and the list goes on. The provincial team at that time was super strong and my year wasn't quite as strong, I would say, the, the 75 uh, born kids. But, uh, yeah, it's, club levels come a long way. It's, it's a lot better now for sure. And what do you remember about your year? As you mentioned, you had some offers and I think – it wasn't the most popular to leave the province, but definitely guys were like Dan Lewis went out west to Manitoba. I think Delaney went to Winnipeg. Uh, guys like Jeff stayed and went to U of T. So when you were looking at post secondary, did you know you wanted to stay at home, or did you get some options and maybe it just wasn't a good fit for you to either go east or west? 
Yeah, they're just they're, for me. There wasn't really a, a whole lot of options. I mean, I had some schools that I had talked to, but uh, you know, I was a basketball guy, and I had some I, at the first at first. I had some opportunities to do some stuff with basketball, and then with volleyball. I just uh, you know, I went to see a U of T game and uh, fell in love with the program. I went and you know watched them play in the playoffs and the amazing energy that was there, and got to meet Horst, and you know, I hit it off with him and liked the program and thought. No, this is something I want to do. And, and like you said, there wasn't that many guys who were really going anywhere significant. Uh, you know, there's a few guys before me who had gone to the States, like, you know, Jason Mulholland went to USC. And, uh, you know, I think Jason Fair went to Ball State. There was a few guys like that. And, you know, Doug McBride went to Lewis and guys like that. But uh, there wasn't a ton of opportunities to go uh, with, you know, Lewis and Delaney going out west. They, they had good opportunities to go out there. But I thought Toronto was a good fit for me. And, uh, you know, retrospect, I'm glad it was a good fit for me yeah, before we jump ahead to U of T, you mentioned one name that I want to circle back to. So obviously Dustin Reed gets a lot of praise, great coach, still involved in volleyball. But for people who know the name Daryl Reed, like he was a stud at the college level. What can you tell us about him at, at the youth level? Because that guy could play. I just think his name doesn't come up well enough just because he's not currently actively coaching at a high level or maybe out in the community as much as Dustin is, right? Yeah, actually, uh, we just actually reconnected, uh, I guess it was last summer, two summers ago, and uh, a buddy of mine called me up and said that he wanted me to uh, fill in at a beach league, which I really had no interest in doing, <laughs> uh, and uh, I was actually uh, asked the same evening to play in, uh, to fill in for a softball team, so I was like, oh, whatever, I'll go play baseball, and uh, my buddy ended up getting Daryl to come and play, and uh, so we went out for a couple drinks after, and he actually ended up staying the night at my house, hanging out and reminiscing, but uh, yeah, Daryl, when we were younger, was, you know, he was in great shape, he was a really strong kid, and just an awesome player all around, like amazing passer, great skills, and uh, I became pretty good buddies with those guys, and uh, actually talked to Dustin a couple times this week, so I still connect with them whenever I can. So with your era of club, was there anybody you really look forward to either being on their team or, or competing against? Like you mentioned, it was a pretty good class where maybe not directly your birth year, but definitely older and younger, there were some guys. So how was the level either in high school or in club that you just really look forward to some some battles across the province? It was interesting because we, we won off the, so for high school volleyball. Back when I was playing, high school volleyball was probably considered more important. Like if you had a high school tournament you had a club tournament, you were going to the high school tournament. Whereas now, you know, I would strongly advise kids on my team not to do that. If they were on my <laughs> <Right. club> team, <laughs> I would hope that they would make the right decision in that regard. But back when we played your high school, was that was your, your pride. That was, you know, what you wanted to do and where you wanted to go. Um, you know, the year before me, guys, Paul Pearden at Oak Ridge, uh, Jeff Chung at East York, uh, with a good friend of mine, Nick Chalaris, as well, playing there, who both of them came and played at U of T with me. But, uh, and then Justin Reed and Daryl were at Clark High School, which is a small little school, but they, because they were so good, they played up and played the top level, which was was AAA. Uh, so the year before me, uh, Paul Dearden and Oak Ridge won off, so they beat uh, Dustin and Clark High School in the final. We won the consolation final that year, and then the previous year, uh, we beat uh, Mayfield, and actually that was the school that uh, Jeff White went to, and he wasn't playing at that time, but uh, Travis Winches was one of the other big players there, but... Uh, yeah, the high school game was definitely where it was at uh, back in my day over club. Nice. And you mentioned you hit it off right away with Orist. What can you tell our listeners who maybe haven't connected with him? Because I think he, he's a great personality. I always make time to chat with him every time I see him. Great guy. Like, what stands out in your mind that he did so well with U of T? Not only your years, but years before and after. It seems like he had a good thing going for a long time there. 
For sure, yeah, he was a great leader. Uh, you know, someone who just commanded your respect and has so much experience in the game in so many different uh, roles and capacities. For me, it worked well for me because he just kind of, it was a good fit for me. He just kind of let me be me. And, you know, I went in and was a, an undersized, goofy-footed left-side player. And, uh, you know, I remember coaches telling me before I went to university, yeah, when you go to university, you know, your, your coach is going to make you change. And, uh, you know, I told Oris that story a couple months into our, our first year. He said, uh, I remember him telling me, you're leading the league in Ontario and kills. Why would I change what you're doing? You're doing just fine. So, <laughs> you know, he, he didn't try to change who I was. But at the same time, you know, he would give it to you when you needed to, uh, talking to. And, uh, you know, you listened when he said stuff. I remember one time clearly as well. And I was playing a lot of beach at the time. And I think it was Ryan McNeil was playing for Ryerson. And I rolled the ball, and Ryan went up and threw the ball back at me. And uh, worst call of time, I was like, do you see any sand here? Do you see a sun in the sky? He's like, stop rolling the ball. You know, <laughs> hit the ball. So, you know, we, we had a good relationship. And, uh, you know, I still look forward to uh, having beers with him here and there whenever we, uh, we try to catch up. Yeah, what can you tell us about the practice environment? Because as you mentioned, he's, he's not afraid to call people out on their stuff. But I, I don't know a former team or a former athlete of his that doesn't want to go for a beer with them right so obviously you you had a personality jeff chung very strong personality competitor even like binstock arsenal the list goes on where he's got all these unique guys coming through the program how did he keep it together while keeping it like loose but competitive you know what i mean i, I think like i always one of the, the things that he said to us that kind of stuck with me over the years was you know if you're gonna hoot with the owls you gotta soar with the eagles and so he created a culture where we did maybe a little bit too much hooting, but uh, <laughs> we, uh, we we enjoyed ourselves and we enjoyed, you know, being around each other. But that had, you know, it, it was good in the sense that we wanted to play for each other. We were really tight. We were a good band of brothers. Like, you know, for instance, for me, um, just a couple weeks ago, like I still talk to guys on that team daily. And, you know, we always connect. And, uh, you know, just every year at Horace would bring together a, a new group of these guys and he would create a competitive environment of practice where, you know, he fulfilled that competitive need that we had, but then he also created a culture where, you know, off the court, we wanted to hang out. We, we, many of us lived together. We had like two or three volleyball houses and the guys lived together. So, you know, I don't think we always had the most talented team, but I, I feel like when you create a culture where, you know, you like your head coach, you want to play for him and you want to play for each other, you know, good things are going to happen for sure. Now, I think it's pretty amazing that you won a championship every year where you were there. So as as a first year, what were you walking into? Was U of T winning before you got there, or was you as a first year? Did you have expectations to start and kind of lead a team to a championship when you you were a freshman? Yeah, I was. I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, I was a bit of a, a obsessive about things like that. So I actually looked at, you know, I, I went to some U of T games. And I knew exactly where I thought my place was. There, they had a left side before me named Aaron Holm. And uh, Aaron was in his final year, and uh, when I saw them play, I, I, I looked at the roster and I said, that's my spot next year, and kind of thought that that would be where I would be fitting in, and it, it worked out well, because I did start there my first year. They did win OU's the year before I got there, so they, they, they did have a strong uh, core there, with you know, Jeff Chong obviously being there, uh, helped, and uh, a good friend of mine, Paul Moran, and Ross Clark, and Peter Estevez, and a couple other guys like that, so they had a real good uh, culture there that I could just jump into right away and fit in well with those guys. So you mentioned your, your personality and how obsessive and how hard of a working you are. I'm interested in this debate because I, I have it off the air a lot. Do you think personal goals need to be exclusive of team goals? Like, do you think it's okay to say, I'm going to start, I'm going to contribute, and we're going to win a championship? Or were you like a team first guy that said, I, I don't care if I don't start as long as we're winning? Like, where did you kind of find your spot in that balance? 
Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I think that's kind of changed for me over the years as well. I know that uh, personally, you know, it, it, secretly I would say back when I was younger and maybe a little more mature, I was, I definitely was a little, I wouldn't say preoccupied, but it, it definitely was a thought. I liked individual accolades, but I, I was uh, an obsessive, you know, winner, like in the sense that I wanted to win and be competitive. I remember, and also was detrimental in a way, like I had a very bad temper and uh, my parents love relaying stories of how, you know, I would smash my tennis racket against the practice wall and, uh, you know, how I would kick over blocks as a baby and things like that. But, you know, I just always, it, it was difficult. I always wanted to win. So, you know, however we got there, I learned that that was more valuable. But, and I would say now I'm almost uncomfortable with, with individual accolades. I don't even like recognizing individual players because I think volleyball is such an ultimate team game. It's just, you know, so I don't like singling out players. So, yeah, I do struggle. It's it, my Nice, nice. And I know you don't like to brag, so hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot here, but when listeners hear that you were goofy-footed, arguably undersized, I mean, you're a pretty big guy, pretty fit, but uh, one thing that stood out about your game is, is Al Arsenault told me this. I don't know if he's ever told you this, but he thinks he's one of you're one of the best passers he's ever seen play live. So with you in practice, was that something you just prided yourself on? You were gonna you were gonna be a competitor. It was gonna be your ball control. Or if a younger person came up to you right now and said, "Hey, man, I'm six foot and I want to play outside in the OUA or in U Sports, how can I do it your way?" Yeah, it's uh, you know I had my, my, my skills that I was good at, and uh, you know passing uh, was one of my better skills for sure. And I think I was a pretty versatile hitter. Uh, I was a horrific walker, uh, so I was a bit of a liability at the net. Yeah, I, I think there definitely still is a place uh, for the undersized guy. I think you, you have to be a pretty big jumper and you have to bring other things to the table. I think if you can be a solid passer, there's going to be a role for you on any team because you know, we don't need to set the P2 that often. And the game's changed a little bit, as you know. Like The guys have definitely gotten bigger, but uh, you know, for the undersized guy, if you're athletic and you're working hard, like I said, there's, there's always going to be a spot for you. And what can you tell us about the OUA at that time, where I think some listeners will hear that, okay, they won before you got there, you ripped off four in a row, took a year off, and then went back when you were doing uh, some some masters or your teaching certificate. So what was the league like? Because I imagine it wasn't easy every year, but you guys definitely had a strong unit. Yeah, we there's, there were some good teams, and I look back, and actually it's funny how your your memory doesn't actually, isn't always correct, because uh, <laughs> I was looking back at some stuff the other day with some of the guys that I played with, and uh, you know, like I said about being obsessive, I used to keep scrapbooks, and I still have them of every newspaper clipping, all of our results, and where we were in standings and stuff, and I just kind of, when I think back, I always just thought, ah, we won every year, so we were the top team, but in actuality, we weren't. Uh, some years we didn't win the league, and uh, you know, George, my, my beach partner, George Lubacek, they had a real strong team at uh, York with Rich Van Heisen and Joe Pepina and Andrew Sulatiki and uh, a bunch of those guys. They had a really strong team, and uh, we always struggled with them. Uh, fortunately for us, we always pulled it off in the playoffs. <laughs> and then uh, Queens was always strong as well. Uh, you know, guys like uh, Mike Spence and Andrew Calder, and, uh, they, had, they had an awesome team as well that uh, we battled with. And actually, Jake Magdalene went there as well and uh, gave us a run for our money when we uh, when they changed the format to a best two out of three. And we actually went to the, the third and final match. I still remember this very clearly. Actually, it was Josh Binstock's first year. And he was in the front row and I was in the back row. And we were, we were losing the third match. of uh, It was 1-1 in matches. And we were losing in the fifth set. And I remember thinking, I'm sitting in position six going, I can't believe I'm going to lose in my last year after winning four and come this far. 
and I think Binstock and ripped off two huge blocks on Meglin, and uh, we ended up winning. And uh, yeah, so the rest is history. <laughs> Let's give that guy a quick shout out because I think everyone knows about Josh's beach career, but he was a darn good indoor player. I think he's one of the best, like ball to hand blockers, where he just always found a way to take away lanes, right? So, what was it like seeing him develop over the years? Because obviously you saw him on the beach, but what was he like as a first year at U of T? Yeah, I mean, he came in with a lot of confidence. Obviously, he was a good athlete. I know he played some other sports as well, and uh, came in with big personality. And like you said, his blocking—I don't—I don't think I've blocked with uh, or played with anybody who is as good of a blocker as he is. You know, even this, we ran this Top Gun event uh, last summer, just a fun, you know, Forest tournament on honor of Andrew Calder. Uh, he was just amazing. You know, just the amount of space he takes and the, the court vision he has at the net. He just gets uh, his hand on everything. It's uh, it's he's hard to hit around. <laughs> I hate playing beach against him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he was a funny character when he came in because he had. I remember, you know, I was the captain in his first year, and he came in and he had all these you know individual routines he was doing, and he'd be off doing his own thing. And I remember basically grabbing by the scruff of the neck and going, "Binstock, get over here! Like you're with the team. We're doing this." And he's like, "Well, I do my routine. I'm like, not." anymore you don't you do what the team's doing so you know and uh yeah he was awesome he was an awesome indoor player too, you know, for sure awesome and, and when you look back at those times what was the goal setting like either between yourself as a leader or orist or, or dust uh dustin excuse me or jeff chung like was it i don't know if you had a whiteboard in the team room or anything but was it like written down talked about every day that you were going to win the league or how did you guys think about goal setting so when you were in those tough moments in the playoffs did it did it feel natural that you were going to overtake it or or how was it talked about because winning I, I don't think you ever get used to it but was it almost expected when you were on these runs I would say it was expected, and, and it was something that we didn't talk about a lot. We just kind of, I think we all were on the same page. Like I said, we li- a lot of us lived together, uh, so we spent you know, most of the day together. And just, you know, we were a tight group, and I think that's what kind of brought us through, but we definitely lacked in, you know, formal goal setting and all the things that teams do now, even down to the 12 and 13U level. We were just kind of, you know, and that's one of the things I often say about my beach career is we were kind of just flying by the seat of our pants. You know, we'd go to one thing, I'd be like, okay, great. Now we qualified for a world championship. Great. Okay, let's go play that. Qualified for Pan Am Games. Okay, we'll go play that. So, you know, we just didn't really, you know, and George and I were like that as well in our beach careers. We, we didn't sit down and go, hey, you know what? Our goal is to try and make the Olympics or our goal is to make the world championships. We just kind of went, oh, hey, great. Here's where the tour's going. Let's go play those eight events this year. And uh, we, we definitely lacked direction both that's one of the major things I was there as a takeaway I would have from playing at U of T and also my beach career is, you know, just the lack of goal setting and actually having a direction as to where you want to go. Now, did that contribute to why maybe it didn't transfer to the national stage where I think context dependent, but maybe the, the West just had more guns than you guys did or Dalhousie was obviously very strong then. Like, why did the, the winning the OUA not transfer to maybe more success at nationals for you every year? Yeah, I would say for us, we just, we lacked big game experience. You know, every year, in the OUA, Western, Queens, York, you know, it would change who was good, but there'd be a few good teams in there. Ryerson was good a couple of years. And, you know, we would battle with those teams, but we didn't get the opportunity to play against the big style of volleyball that was being played out west, you know, like the Manitobas and, you know, Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, Alberta, Calgary, those teams, you know, they were beating up on each other and playing each other frequently. And we didn't get an opportunity to really see those teams. And, and by the time we figured it out at Nationals, it was it was too late. So, you know, like my record, the first round at Nationals is one and four. And the year we, 
we won that one match. We were the seventh seed and beat um, Sherbrooke, who was the two seed. So, you know, again, we played a team that was more an Ontario kind of style of playing as opposed to the you know, West style that we didn't match up well with. There were years where I think we were, uh, we had the guns to, to definitely do better than we did. Uh, like I said, we just, you know, lacked a, a little bit of the the experience. Like the one year Dalhousie came silver, got silver at CIS. We beat them four times that year. We were 4-0 against them. So we, we could compete with those teams. We just needed a little more practice at that level. <laughs> Nice, nice. And we do have a lot to cover, but before I move on from U of T, another name that I just wanted to check in on is Dustin Reed. Obviously, everyone who knows him well, he's a great personality, but you got to see him in his playing career. And I don't believe he stayed at U of T very long because he went on to the national team. But what do you remember about being in the gym with him, either, either like you said, at the club level, either playing with or against him? Or what was he like as a teammate at U of T? At U- I didn't actually play with Dustin at U of T. Uh, Dustin played one year, and he came in. Uh, he came in the same year as Jeff Chung, and so oh, he I played see. Okay. one season. Yeah, and then he ended up leaving and having a little bit of a stint with the national team. Uh, but I did play club with him, and uh, yeah, he was an interesting character. I, got, I have some Dustin stories, but uh, <laughs> he was even like when we were juvenile, and I was playing with the guys in, in the Ganaraska. You know, he would get a call up, or he'd have a national team tryout, and. Uh, Dustin had a propensity to kind of fluctuate in weight. He'd be in amazing shape, and then he'd put on some weight, and then he'd be in amazing shape. And, you know, he would get that call that, you know, we had a national team, and I remember him running around the back of the court while we were practicing because he was the older. He was junior age group, and we were juveniles, and he'd be running around in the gym trying to get in shape and <laughs> doing his jump solo <laughs> workouts and, uh, you know, doing stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. He was he was a great athlete, too. That's something that a lot of people don't know. He was good at other sports. I remember he, at his house, they have a big uh, tennis court and all of they got tons of sports there. And I remember thinking I was a pretty good athlete in high school, and uh, he, he worked me over pretty good. He was uh, he was a lot stronger and bigger than me physically, <laughs> and uh, he took advantage of it on the, in a couple different sports. But, uh, yeah, it was a fun guy to hang out with for sure. Nice. So with you playing at such a high-level indoor, and we've mentioned like you were around uh, Dustin and Jeff and all the other guys in the OUA and, and grew up with Dan Lewis, was indoor ever going to be an option for you, or was the beach game just what the draw was? If you were going to represent Canada, you wanted to do it on the beach? Yeah, it's interesting. Like back then, I, I loved the, the beach culture so much. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have the Labatt Tour. It just was something that I did every summer and kind of fell in love with that and wanted to represent Canada internationally uh, on the beach. Didn't really have any opportunities to play uh, nationally. And I think if I had of it would have been more in a, a libero role, would have been where I would probably get a tryout there. But uh, it was something that at that point, I, I, it's funny how I've kind of flipped. Like right now, I would say I like the indoor game a lot more. But back then, I think I was just kind of done with indoor and felt that I could accomplish more on the beach and uh, decided to go that route. Now confirm this for me. Did you play one year of pro or at least go for a trip? Like I think you, you had a shot to play indoor club, right? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I was playing beach and uh, I remember I got a call from uh, Rich Van Heisen actually called me and uh, said, listen, you got to get over here to Holland. We need a libero. Uh, can you get on a flight? And I was like, oh, all right, sure. So <laughs> I told my girlfriend, she wasn't too happy about my wife now, but told her at the time that I was leaving and I didn't know if I was leaving for you know, the full year and or if I was just going for a few weeks. So that was a, a challenging time, but uh, went over and uh, I remember it was a pretty funny story. I got there. I was super, it was one of my first experiences with like really heavy jet lag and I got there and made the mistake of having a nap as soon as I got there. And uh, we went to practice and I was, had never played with the ball, hadn't even been really playing indoor that frequently and 
played decently. And I remember after the practice, the coach talked to Rich and I. He said, yeah, you know, uh, I don't think it's going to work out. And, uh, you know, I basically just stepped off the plane. So I thought, whatever, I don't really like the situation anyways. And the next day they had a Champions League game and uh, I got to go in the change room and the, the coach throws me a jersey and he's like, you're starting. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, wow, that changed dramatically. So, you know, I grabbed the jersey and got to play libero, which I had never done until this this game that we were playing. And uh, went in and uh, kind of played fairly well. Made a couple good passes. I made two foot digs, and the coach was dancing around on the sidelines. And I remember he, I came off when I switched out for one of the middles, and he went, he grabbed me and gave me a big hug. And he's like, you know, your chances of staying are really increasing. And I was like, <laughs> great. <laughs> So it was it was a really cool experience to be able to do that. And I got to actually play a few matches with um, with uh, Pete Zomers, which was uh, Rich's team, which is a high level uh, Dutch team. And at the end of it, they just said, you know, we don't have enough money right now, but if you wait. And then I said, you know what, this is all I wanted. I wanted to experience this and see what I, if I liked it or not. And it wasn't the life for me. And, uh, I like the freedom of of playing beach and uh, doing my own thing a little bit more than you know, the structure of the uh, being in, in Holland and you know working out and no one speaking English and it just it wasn't I didn't really enjoy the experience long term anyways yeah. awesome yeah thanks for sharing that one so with you growing up and being a beach guy you were in the beach game when it was almost like the wild wild west just this lawlessness environment where <laughs> what can you tell us about the beach in terms of there was no OBA beach tour as far as like youth right so if you wanted to play as a 17 year old i think you're playing against adults like what yeah. was it like when was the first time you played a beach tournament and and what age division technically were you in when you started playing yeah so it, that was something that was uh, a lot different and definitely there are some pros and some cons to it my first beach partner was dan lewis so pretty good choice um, <laughs> he he and i uh, had a lot of success actually in uh, in the time that we played together and uh, a, a lot of good times and one that kind of kind of stands out is you know we used to try to play tournaments in ontario so we would play a tournament in ontario and then we would go to the states the next day or vice versa and uh you know dan and i went down to rochester a lot and uh we we cleaned up there a lot and uh we were on the beach one day and this guy comes up to us and he says to us you guys are canadian right and i said yeah he said well i need a ride home and I'm like we <laughs> met this guy and uh you know he, he tells us later it's, his name is james olenic and uh we end up we lost in the finals of this tournament to, to some guys and uh james didn't do as well as he normally does and you know he got in the car and the whole way home this guy was chirping at us about how great him and his partner were and we we're like who is this guy <laughs> like we had no idea so dan and i get back and the corvo is that, that next weekend and he says just wait until you see my partner he, we are going to destroy you guys and we we're 17 at the time you know just going to these tournaments in the states and doing the stuff and Sure enough, it ends up in Corvo. We end up playing him and his partner, his Conrad Leineman. And uh, so his partner was something special. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we ended up playing the two of them in the semifinals. And, uh, you know, if, if anyone's ever seen Dan, if you ever watch any kind of World Cup volleyball now, you know, he's, uh, he's, a, pretty, uh, he's a pretty intense guy. You know, he's jumping around doing the, the hand gestures on the sideline and, and freaking out. So, you know, when we played, he was like whooping it up and we were up and we actually had match point on and we were up 14 13 in the old uh side out scoring system and because these 17 year old kids are kind of competing and beating a lot of the adult teams we got a lot of attention there's a big crowd around the court and uh we ended up blowing it and uh, losing 16 14 but uh it was a good lesson it was something that we had to do and that was our first big you know adult tournament was the corvo back in the day and and dan and i would travel around a lot and play all of these tournaments Actually, I remember 
one more damn little story I remember we go to we went to Montreal and we were just kids and I was pretty shy pretty quiet just wanted to keep to myself and we go to the tournament there's a big draw board and all the guys and girls teams are gathered around the uh, the draw board and uh, all he hears Dan's voice he's like how the hell are we ranked six in this tournament like <laughs> loud enough that everybody can hear and I'm like oh my god like I'm putting my head down like just don't even I just want to blend in I don't want anybody to see me we ended up winning the tournament, so I guess he was right. But uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. He was a pretty outspoken and pretty intense guy. Oh man! So what can you tell me about not only being that age and playing against men, but going to the states? And, and I've I've heard this with a few of the roughies over the years that Canadians weren't always well accepted to go down to these U.S. tournaments, where maybe the the refereeing was a little tighter on your hands than maybe an opponent. Like, what was the vibe going down there? Because obviously it, they want to compete and they want to play against good teams, but it wasn't always an open environment for Canadians to come down and win the tournament, right? No, it wasn't at all. Like they uh, they were super friendly. Some people were like, we yeah, we even we went down there so often. We had people that would just let us stay at their house. So it's you know, seventeen year olds. It was sweet. We go down there. Someone would take care of us. They'd cook us some food, and we go to the tournament, and we won most of the time. So we would come home with you know, one hundred fifty, two hundred US each, and we get a pair of Killer Loop sunglasses and uh, maybe a, a watch, freestyle watch or something. So for us, that was you know the greatest thing ever <laughs> when you're in high school. Um, but we always joked that, you know, we would go down and the earlier we registered, because the registration was in the morning, if we registered early, there wouldn't be that many teams. So there would be a deadline of like 8.30 to register for the tournament. So we would sit in our car and hide in the bushes, basically, and, you know, wait until right at the last minute. And then we'd sneak out and go sign up because we didn't want teams to drop out because it would impact the, the prize money. So, you know, we wanted more teams and we didn't want them leaving because we were playing. <laughs> wow. So... Prize money based on the entry fee, which kind of makes sense, like it's balanced, but you're saying that th- there would be some weekend warriors who are just like, oh, I don't want to play against these guys, I'm out, before yeah, they, they registered. Want yeah, they, want, they would avoid the open division or just play, you know, another division if, if they saw us coming. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. we hold on to the last minute and then go register. <laughs> <laughs> now, another area you did well on and touched on was the Labatt Tour, and we've had a few requests from listeners for somebody to tell these stories, and, and your name came to my mind right off the bat is, what can you tell us about the Labatt Tour? Because it doesn't exist now, but the, the legend is still out there, right? So, in, in your own words, what can you describe about what John May and all the other organizers had going on uh, with the Pro Tour in Canada? Yeah, it was, it's, it's just, it was so awesome. It was just something that was such a great experience for, for all of us, you know, to be able to go travel around the country, you know, go to all these beaches, hang out with them, play the sport that you love. You know, it was amazing, and they did such a great job. You know, it's Dan Gallagher on the mic and Oris on the mic and DJ Mike spinning tunes. And, you know, they, they did pretty much what the AVP is kind of is doing a good job of now, I believe, in the States. And, uh, you know, they created this, this show. And the, the cool thing about it, and I think the AVP is doing a pretty good job on this as well, is, there was a lot of personalities. So, you know, people loved the volleyball and the level of volleyball was good, but, you know, they got to, to see these personalities and, and week after week. And then, especially when you're going back to some of the same locations, like the Sega Beach and Grand Bend, and, you know, you're going to Riverpont Me and these places, the players start to have, you know, uh, they're a character and people know who they are. And, uh, you know, I, I equated to it, so it was a lot like the, uh, the WWE in an aspect in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of antics back in the day. You know, you had your, your guys who are very good volleyball players, but it was, it was also a good show. 
you know, I, I think Mark Riley, who I played with for a few years, is, is a great example. I can probably tell, you know, 40 Mark Riley stories. But <laughs> one that stands out for me that I love is, uh, you know, we're playing in Sylvan Lake, Alberta, and uh, him and Evie Matthews, who is an AP coach now, were this new team on the tour, and we were told that they were pretty strong. And George and I were playing them and, and beating them pretty badly uh, in this game. And uh, Mark just goes over and sits at the sidelines and sits in his chair. And uh, we're on the court going, you know, what are you doing? And Mark just goes, I'm not playing anymore. And the ref is like, take your spot, like tries to gesture him to go back to the court. And Mark's like, I'm not playing anymore. You don't have the right uniform on, and I'm not playing. And then <laughs> the ref kind of just does uh, up and down, up his body, has no idea what Mark's talking about. He says, you know, you need to have white shoes on. You don't have white shoes on. I'm not playing until you get them on. And so he just sits in his chair at the side. We're like, hey, you got to be kidding me. I think it was like two points from game. And, you know, the ref had to sheepishly get down off the stand, go into the tent, find some white shoes from somebody else, come back and finish the game. But, yeah, there was just stuff like that that, you know, something was just added to the entertainment. Like, it was, it was fun to watch <laughs> good volleyball and if the tour was deep, but there was also a lot of funny stories, and those are really the things that I kind of remember from the tour. Yeah, obviously with Mark and John doing well at 96, and I remember at its peak, like, Overkill was the shirt in beer cases one summer. I remember before I was even really into beach volleyball, that, that was the T-shirt giveaway in those Labatt cases, right? So as a high-level player, what do you remember kind of about the golden age of beach volleyball? Like, I understand that you had a couple personal sponsors. Like, was there crowds and everything? Like, it was kind of like a festival feel that people – like wanted to be around these events and like you said you visited the same spots and it became like a bit of a crowd following right yeah for sure overkill obviously is synonymous with beach volleyball and, and freddie and ian at the beginning ian ebbett uh, was involved as well and uh they created such an awesome brand and you know for us we were sponsored by overkill and, and nokia at the time and when they did the beer sponsor thing it was kind of cool because then you know all my friends get these shirts and they're like wow this is not your sponsor so we felt pretty cool we thought we were you know something special but uh yeah like you said these, these cult followings would occur at the different stops especially the strong ones and and you know raponte was always you know probably the best in terms of of crowds and uh you know again when i think about playing there i think i've lost in the finals four times there i never won i think i've come second twice but uh sorry come second four times i think i've come third twice but uh you know, it just when I think about it, I don't think about games we played there. I think about like some, again some of the antics and the funny things that happened there with the crowds and how they created such an awesome environment. I remember one time playing with Riley, and I think we were playing uh, Dan Lewis and Steve Delaney in the finals actually, and they were beating us. And uh, Mark and I had a, a history of, of actually arguing a lot on the court, and actually have gotten to physical confrontations on the court before, which is. <laughs> pretty funny as very good friends and uh you know one time i forget we had a long rally we lost the rally and mark had fallen on his knee and he was on the court and i had a you know a habit of throwing my hat in anger and i was across the court and just you know the ball hit the ground and i turned and i fired my hat across the court and then my hat landed perfectly on mark's head and the crowd <laughs> just was like ah, everybody just went crazy and it was like this moment where we were so angry because we lost this point we we're losing and not playing very well and you know, the crowd just loved it. Like, they're, A, they're a knowledgeable crowd, but they're really into it. So, it's, you know, Rapani, there was always that, that kind of good vibe and a good crowd that knew the game but was really into it as well. Yeah. Nice.
Mason, what was the, the player's culture like? Because I've been out for dinner a few times with John Child, and I'm always just begging for stories. And he mentioned him and Mark, they always wanted to do well, but they always made a point that they were going to make an appearance at the player's party. So it sounds like even <laughs> even the top dogs were going out, and I imagine the qualifier teams are there, that it just seemed like there, there was a brotherhood and a sisterhood that if you were in the tournament, like you were gonna you were going to show face and at least be social, right? Yeah, that was always that was the battle. So, like the uh, final four teams made it to Sunday. So, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't have quarterfinal games where people would be at the sidelines going, you know, if you lose tonight, we can have a lot more fun. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, I think I'm going to try and win this one. And uh, you know, we'd go, you'd, you'd make the final four, and that was always the, the thing. You got to, you know, totally, you got to make sure you're, you don't stay up too late. And then as soon as you get there and you make an appearance, it's almost impossible to leave because everybody's, you know, hanging out, having a great time, and they want you to, they want to kind of try and bury you before your Sunday match but uh, yeah the culture was awesome because a lot of the same players traveled to each of these spots and uh, and everybody was friends it was really like there was a lot of rivalries but I mean I can't think of anybody I didn't really get along with on the tour I wouldn't hang out with so it was a, it was a good environment at the player parties for sure nice and while you're managing this like you mentioned it was kind of a summer job when you started but when you're on the national team it's funny to look back and the national team my understanding is it was just as lawlessness as, as that was right where you got your carding money but there was there was no head coach there was no centralized training you were basically on your own in this fight for results against other canadian teams so how did you kind of complement traveling on the world tour and wanting to earn your carding for the next year but also wanting to play at home and earn some money because i imagine your seasonal planning must have been pretty challenging right <laughs> we didn't have a seasonal plan. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was, uh, we would look at it and just go, yeah, here's our opportunities to play on the national tour with us being sponsored by Nokia. You know, Nokia wanted us to stay at home because uh, for different events because John and Mark and Conrad and Jody uh, were ranked very high in the world at that point, both in the top, you know, 12 to 15 max, and, you know, Mark and John were in the top 10. So, you know, they were playing as many international events as they could, and they would come back to the, the ones that fit in, the Labatt Tour events that would fit in with their schedule. And uh, so, you know, it was advantageous for us to represent our sponsors at these events and be highly ranked and get a lot of, you know, uh, coverage on, on The Big Spike, which is a television show, which seems weird that they had a television show on Sportsnet about volleyball. But, um, you know, so we tried to, to, to try to manage and stay at home as much as we could as well while trying to go play internationally. And, you know, we had aspirations of doing things internationally and had some success, but, uh, you know, we, we obviously had more success at home. So, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult balance. And, you know, with carding checks for national team, you had to compete with, some of your friends and it definitely was a lawlessness to it where you know we didn't have a coach and i can still remember in university being a you know starving student and i get my carding check and it would be like hey we're gonna go to the beer store and, you know, <laughs> me and my roommate should grab the check and walk down the street to the bank and then we go to the beer store so it wasn't really you know it was a little less formal than it is now which i think i probably would have thrived a little bit more in the, in the environment that it's where it's at now Nice. And before I forget, just a quick shout out to Marty P. I think he was a big part of the big spike and still involved in the volleyball community. So it's, right. it's yeah, great that these Paul. names keep coming to mind. That's great. Um, Marty Paul used to live down the street from me. There you go. Yeah. Beauty. Love that guy. Um, one thing that comes up with our players currently is the idea of sponsors. So for you, I, I think you were on Team Bud Light. I saw pictures of one year. You had the Nokia thing, the overkill thing, where everyone thinks oh, it'd be great to get a sponsor because they want that money. But for somebody who went through the era of having a sponsor, what did you give back that made it worth 
it to them? Like, obviously you mentioned being on TV for Nokia, but it, it's got to go deeper than just a name on a t-shirt, right? Like as an athlete, what do you think you delivered to them? So our listeners can say, okay, I want to sponsor, but I got to, you know, fill in my end of the bargain too, right? Yeah. Nokia, I would say was our first, like Orca was our first sponsor and it was fairly informal and they didn't expect a lot from us. Nokia was our first kind of foray into a real legit sponsorship where you're signing a contract and there's certain appearances and things that they wanted you to do. Um, some of them were a little hokey and <laughs> it wasn't really up my alley because like I said back then I wasn't super comfortable with doing a lot of the stuff but uh, I remember going to a, a Nokia conference once and they dressed us up in like you know beach attire and we had to come in and give them a speech and play games with them like things that were completely outside my comfort zone but you know things that we did for our sponsors and and I think about like events like you know we'd go to Parlay Beach and they would have us go the day before and we'd do some interviews and uh, you know we did some radio spots and things like that so you know we had to put in some time and it wasn't just they weren't just giving us money for nothing but uh, you know and, and like I deal with this often with my own business I have friends and people all the time they're like oh wear your shirt and I'm like how is that good advertising for me you know like you said just, just wearing a shirt isn't a great always a great way of kind of promoting a brand so we definitely uh, created a good relationship with Nokia but uh, we definitely you know did some things for them to kind of now did you ever feel pressure to perform or like you said you touched on earlier you were already super obsessive super competitor that you were going to try to win the tournament whether you had a pressure of a sponsor saying you better be on tv sunday or not right Mm -hmm. yeah i mean our sponsors were pretty easy going that way like they they liked the the tour they liked being associated with tour and at one point they were the title sponsor of the tour and they just wanted some guys and if the most part you know george was you know obviously a physical specimen like the guy could be on the cover of men's health magazine so <laughs> sure. it's not bad to be you know associated with a guy like that he still actually looks like that now to this day um and you know i, I think we were pretty uh, an easy team for for them to choose because we weren't too edgy in the sense that you know i had some temper issues but you know it wasn't it wasn't too crazy we were kind of good guys that we could represent we weren't going to do anything stupid as well and we were going to have some decent results nice and diving into the national team stuff you mentioned that it's very competitive because there's only so much carding to go around where we've had other guests on the show and in norway estonia denmark it seems like the young guns have made their own beach clubs and they'll have a group of six where my memory of your era with the national team is you would never train with guys who are at the same level as you uh in, in a group of six and call it a club because i don't think there was enough carding right so who are you training with and did you get the sense that when you went to a tournament that like you had to beat the steve delaney's or the the other guys on the team so you you could have your spot on the team the following year. Yeah, for sure. It was it was, it was pretty cutthroat because um, you know you're buddies with these guys, but at the same time you're always looking for little angles, and you, you didn't want to tell them you know where you were going, how you're going to get your points. You had to come up with your little strategy for how you're going to kind of you know outpoint some of your friends. To, and you know, for us, we trained with John and Mark quite a bit, um, which was you know an awesome experience. We kind of like I was quite, we were kind of like their their sparring partners, and, and we were fortunate enough to get to play with them quite a bit. But yeah, the carding was was very challenging. And I I think about like you know perfect example is this: we went to Mallorca one year, and we were uh, awarded a wild card. So the wild card comes up on the website, and uh, we thought, oh great, we get wild card because this was was literally down to uh, Steve Delaney and James Gravel. And myself and George for the for the carding, and we were you know battling it out. This was the last event, and we got this wild card awarded to us. And it sounds kind of it's not great, but it was kind of a way of we if we would get those points, we were automatically going to get the carding for the following year. And the FIVB actually pulled the card 
later in the week, and Sinjin Smith and Carl Hankel had the wild card, oh, and we complained to no avail, so it didn't work. So we ended up having to go and play the qualifier again, and uh, it was a, it was a crazy tournament. Actually, that was during 9/11, but uh, I had such bad back issues. I had on uh, we're on Spanish beach with a German doctor who didn't speak English, and I'm getting cortisone shots with a huge needle in my back just oh, because my I was like, we've got to win this game, and we need to get through in order to start carding for the following year. And we actually ended up playing uh, Klemper Rademacher, who Rademacher ended up coming and playing at Dalhousie, and uh, we lost them 16-14 and uh, ended up losing our, our card for that following season. Wow, like I think that's what people don't understand is it, it's you're, you want to represent Canada and you want to support your friends, but at the same time, if I'm carded, maybe you can't be carded, right? So it creates an interesting vibe around the beach scene, right? Yeah, and, and to, to, I mean, to, just to, it was very competitive, but at the same time, like we were still friends. So if, you know, I go back to that story that I just told. Well, once we both got eliminated, you know, Steve Delaney, Anton Hauser, uh, and myself ended up going to Ibiza and sleeping on the beach and you know having a great time, and, you know, making a <laughs> night of it. So you know, we had just lost our card to him, and it was always a battle with us going kind of going back and forth. But uh, you know, we had just lost this battle, but we were still buddies. And, you know, put that aside when we were off the court. It's good to find the balance, and obviously with, with some clubs that you've been a part of, either through the OVL with the Blues Brothers and the Ruffies, it, it sounds like everybody's on good terms. And, and the, when the Glory Day stories start flying, I just sit down and make sure I can hear everybody, because it sounds like it was a good time talking about university and club ball, right, with the same names coming up over and over again. Yeah, for sure. And uh, out the OVL, which most people probably don't know what that is, but that uh, was the Ontario Volleyball League. That was uh, a league that I started and uh, lasted 11 years. And literally, it was just an opportunity for guys after university who weren't playing pro um, to play a little bit more. And uh, that's something that we're sorely lacking as well. It's just something like an outlet for people to continue to play. One volleyball has kind of picked up slack a little bit with you know, real high level stuff. But, you know, for us, that was an awesome time. We have Rough Riders Club and uh, the the Ottawa guys and my Blues Brothers guys. And uh, again, that was just a, a big social experience. But good volleyball, but, you know, having a lot of fun with good, with good volleyball players. Yeah, let's go there before we segue back to the national team stuff. Is that just the gym teacher in you that's always super organized and finding solutions? Because it sounds like in the volleyball community, we can all point out problems, but I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to you. You find solutions a lot. So when you started the OVL, obviously the goal was to play at a high level, but did you know how much work was going to go into it? Because I think you had a circuit at one point. I, I won't get, you know put you under the bridge here, but I mean, Kevin Matthews told me his favorite tournament was obviously to go to Ottawa so you guys could get away from the wives and stuff like that, right? So... <laughs> There was a lot of factors that went into the, this circuit, but like you said, it was if you weren't playing pro, you were playing OVL, right? Yeah, and a lot of guys would come back and and, and still play. Like they had an opportunity or a break from playing pro, they were playing there. And I remember actually one year at uh, I think it might have been at RMC, we we held an event, and uh, the National B team guys all played. So like Blair Ban and Grant Vigras, Vigras, and a lot of those guys were in the B team program played. So. You know, it was it was a good level ball, and it was an opportunity to play. So, and for me, just I've always been an organizer. I just for me, I've always thought, you know, if I want something to happen, I can't just wait for other people to do it. Uh, I just got to do it and get it done. So, if I want, you know, to organize a tournament, I just do it. And uh, you know, I'm okay, I'm fine with putting in the work because I know, uh, you know, I'm going to get to do the things that I love doing. 
Yeah, and you touched on it earlier. I do want to take a deeper dive just into the Calder Cup. So you are also hosting some some fours beach tournaments, and I know it was fun, especially when you had the courts there in Pickering. But uh, it seems a little bit special to, to honor Andrew the way you guys have. So you just want to quickly describe to our listeners what that is, and, and feel free to name drop because when I when I posted that picture last summer, it was a who's who of a volleyball community in Ontario. Yeah, it was uh, it was so awesome to get together with the boys again. I was like. I, told my my wife i think it was my favorite day of the summer last year for sure had a blast that day yeah we we, we brought back our forest tournaments we used to do uh forest tournaments um back in the day both at pickering in my courts and then in toronto it was mainly associated with the rough rider volleyball club and uh the great thing about these tournaments was there was always a theme so you know for instance one year it was a james bond theme and, and during the day you would come as a james bond character and then at night you would throw on a white tux and go out and we'd have you know 50 guys so they're all six to six seven walking into a, a bar with white tuxes on and drinking martinis all night so you know it, it created quite a, a scene but uh you know we had a ton of fun with those tournaments and uh now we're getting older and we just haven't done it for a while and uh with the passing of uh andrew calder who played at queens was uh you know uh, a competitor uh and for me when i was at u of t we thought we'd bring it back in his honor and call it the calder cup and uh we did a uh, top gun theme uh, so you if anybody's familiar with the top gun volleyball scene uh there's guys wearing aviators and jeans and wearing the uh the flight suits and uh it was it was pretty good uh, spectacle uh, this past summer we're planning on doing it uh, every year moving forward and uh, yeah the level was high like so the, the winning team was josh binstock two-time olympian steve delaney national team beach guy richard heisen national team beach guy and my brother-in-law kevin matthews who played you know college so it was a it was a strong team yeah and, and again to compliment your organization i think you came up with the draft structure right where it's just not a free-for-all of picking names like there's a tier system to it are you comfortable sharing how you guys came up with that as well for sure yeah yeah it was uh <laughs> the draft is maybe the most fun we used to actually back in the day we would do the draft the night before at a pub and uh typically there's there's a, a way that we determine who the captains are and normally it's the elder statesmen or the older the older players and uh you kind of go around the horn and do a silent draft. Everybody kind of knows their draft position after you can kind of figure it out, but it's not uh, it's not verbalized, but everybody kind of knows what the deal is. But uh, this year's tournament, Mark threw the tournament for a loop when he, he made some interesting choices, and uh, Binstock was not on time in the morning, so he no one knew if he was actually coming or if he was coming, and uh, so drafting him was a risky maneuver, and uh, I'll credit Steve with uh calling him and making sure he was coming and picking him in the second round. He had a two-time Olympian in the second Ooh. round, so that kind of ruined the tournament, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we lost to them in the finals, but we beat them in pool play before Binstock got there. <laughs> awesome, and with your pedigree, one name I wanted to follow up on, I'm trying really hard to get him on the show, and he, he's a good friend of mine. You really saw the development of Christian Redmond, where he went from like the guy who was always available to be a fourth at the beach to a guy who took a ninth at World Championships. So how has your relationship with Red progressed over the year? Where, like I said, he was just kind of like the kid on the beach to a guy earning some serious results on the World Tour. Yeah, it was it was actually pretty dramatic how quickly he got good. You know, he he played some indoor, actually played at U of T, and didn't really see the court. He didn't play during my era. Um, I always knew him from the beach, and just kind of he was this guy who was just kind of always around, and then started practicing with us a little bit, and then he just started getting good. And I, I referenced Rapotny. I actually think I've lost in the finals to Redmond at least once when he played with Jesse Lelliot. They beat us in the final one year, but uh, yeah, he became just a very smooth player, very good, like just 
just all around good skills and uh, very impressive the, the speed at which he got good and obviously he was one game away from being an Olympian oh. yeah great to see that yeah he really worked himself into a player where I remember when we first met you're like Redmond used to be the guy who called you if you needed a fourth whenever like he was like the super <laughs> sub right if anybody needed a guy he was going to practice that day so <laughs> yep I, I actually remember I think a phone call once he used to hang out with John Child a little bit and I remember I guess they had to have a couple beers and then he started this, I, I believe it was him that started to debate he was, he was, he was they were debating who was a better six foot one player him or myself and they were having a couple beers and <laughs> give me a call it's pretty funny I think we got even with him one year where he got a, a brand new bag of Mikasas and he was at Riley's house and I think you and I took turns he, uh, hiding them and making it into an easter egg hunt for him so <laughs> <laughs> That sounds about right. <laughs> um, so going back into your career, this is good. We're jumping around because there is a lot to cover. And thanks for sharing as many stories as you have. But uh, for you to represent Canada at the Pan Am Games, that's a huge multi-sport event. So how did you either earn the bid or get nominated? How did that tournament come together as far as your development and where you and George were as players? Yeah, it was, it was, a, I mean, it was a great experience. That was my, you know, the biggest kind of event that I've been a part of in terms of a multi-sport uh, event. Obviously, we were at the time, we were ranked third in Canada, and uh, it was in 2003. So, Mark and John were ranked one in Canada, uh, Holden Lineman were ranked two, and uh, they actually had the right to go. Uh, it was there up to them to, to go or not, and um, Holden Lineman were actually the uh, returning champs because they won in 99, uh, and that was in Winnipeg. And uh, both those teams uh, decided not to go and decided to focus on uh, playing internationally and uh, staying on the tour. Uh, we actually had to leave. I think we left Austria to come straight to uh, to go to Santa Domingo uh, for the Pan Am Games. And yeah, something I would. It was it was a great experience because I just never experienced anything like that. But uh, it is weird. I heard Mark telling the story. Marquise uh, telling a story about his first game at the Olympics and how there was nobody in the stands. It was kind of a weird vibe where we played uh, for different reasons. Dominican. It was just the sport wasn't like it was in Toronto when Pan Am hosted or Winnipeg. Uh, it was there just wasn't a lot of people and there wasn't nearly as much interest. So that part of it was a little bit of a letdown. But uh, the experience of being in the athlete village and getting to be around all these awesome athletes and go and watching the indoor volleyball and you know be in line at the food line with you know future NBA players and things like that was kind of a cool uh, experience. Nice, and I think. A lot of our listeners, if they're, you know, anyone who played pre-YouTube era, they didn't get to see, you know, the Paul Durdens that we've talked about it and Mark and John. So when, when you mentioned you were training a lot with Mark and John, what was it that made them so solid and so competitive? Because for John to be a world tour blocker on the tour right now, I, I don't think it would happen. He'd have to be a defender, right? So that team wouldn't happen in the modern era. What made them so successful when they were playing, you know, through the three Olympics they went to? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not just one thing. Um, you know, when you look at them, I, they're they're kind of like there's another team like that in the world too, and that's uh, Maya Brenna from Portugal. And uh, you know, I think they took two fourths at the Olympics, and uh, you know, obviously a very skilled team, both those teams. And I think you would just look at them and you would think, God, these guys, you know, they're smaller. You know, John being a full time blocker at six three is is not you know not exactly a physical specimen either. But you know, they were just so mentally tough, you know, and so competitive. Like I think over the years and all the times I practiced with them, I think I can count on my hand, my one hand, how many times we've beaten them in a 
and a driller again, just, you know, very competitive, always on, always working hard. Um, and I, I would be, I, back in the day, though, you know, John was an amazing blocker. And I, I don't know, I think he could probably still do it. Like, if it was his skill set, the way he was, if you transplanted him to now, I think he could still do it because he was just, his timing was so good and he read the game so well. Uh, and he was just so solid. Like, he's just a smart volleyball player that uh, I, I, he surprised a lot of bigger players in his day. And I've watched him play a lot of matches against some big guys. And, uh, He's the one owning the net, so you know I would just say the mental toughness and just definitely competitiveness for sure. Yeah, that's a good point. I've had the pleasure to coach with John over a lot of years, and he has a way of making the most complex situations just simple, right? Like I think he sees the game so well. So with you coming through the system and playing on World Tour like you did, I'm just looking up and down all the events you went to, and it looks like over the years, just hearing stories from guys, these events don't exist anymore. So you got to play in, in Toronto and Montreal on the World Tour where we don't have those events anymore, but looks like you've been to Marseille, you've been to Berlin, Klagenfort, uh, Stog still exists, but that's obviously a very popular one. Uh, Stavinger, like where were some of the spots that you really enjoyed, not only from a results standpoint, but just from being on tour and just kind of being lucky to be at the, these venues when the competitions were going on yeah i mean the one that stands out for sure is is austria like uh, klagenfurt um i don't think there's a more you know a, a country or an area that's more into beach volleyball in terms of fan support you know the environment there is amazing even for qualifier matches you're just you're getting packed stadiums and uh, just the way they treat you there you're you're like a rock star when you get there, whether you're, you know, in the qualifier or in the main draw. Um, you know, I always love describing kind of little, little things that you need to remember about these tournaments, but the weather was always so awesome there. It was like going to your cottage. They had, you know, docks. It was on this lake called Lake Worthersea, and they would set up the stadium right there. And then they'd have this huge player's tent where, you know, it was like a convenience store. There'd be, you know, chocolate bars and sandwiches and pastas and everything. And they actually had a chef there who would serve you a plate. It wasn't like a buffet style. He actually was serving the food and, you know, they had fridges of Red Bull, and you could just grab as many Red Bulls, and I just it would, they just treated you a lot better than all the other tournaments. But uh, you know, you can go out on the dock and go for a swim, and they would take you out for a boat ride. And uh, I still remember Clagford stands out for me too because that was where my love with Red Bull started. And you know, these <laughs> fridges. I remember we didn't have Red Bull in Canada at the time, and I remember thinking this is delicious, and it's also very good with vodka. And I. I a large suitcase like I put 48 of these in I was still in university at the time so I brought them home and uh, opened up the suitcase and I'm like boys we've got a new drink and they're sat around our table at our, our university house and I brought uh, the Red Bull vodka to the University of Toronto men's football team <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing <laughs> So, yeah, Klagenfurt was always amazing. And I also loved uh, Espino being in, in Portugal. That was always a fun vibe there. I felt like more than any other place, I felt like you were kind of living in, you are experiencing the culture as opposed to some of these other places where you felt a little sheltered because you're, you know, away from the people who actually live there. So uh, it was kind of neat. It was apartment there. It was the apartment hotel Silbert, I still remember the name um, and you get a big apartment and uh, you know you could have a huge kitchen there and make big meals and hang out with all the other players it was it was a blast hanging out there as well nice and how did you find the balance between that because there there was a time in the volleyball Canada program where like being a tourist was a negative term where you had to get off the plane and expect to win and you weren't going to be social where it sounds like you played in an era where yeah you're playing for a living and you're playing for money and if you're going to be away from your family you better take this seriously but there was still a culture amongst the players that you know you could still be social when you're off the court right yeah uh and, and it was always a struggle especially as a qualifier team because you know you're playing 
for hotels, you're playing for points, you're playing for money, you're playing for carding. There was a lot of stress, and uh, you know, you're in these cool locations, and if you get knocked out, you, you know, you can only train for so many hours. So, you know, it was nice to be able to experience some of these cultures, and you know, I often tell the story of how I was in Stad, and uh, we're up in the mountains, and you know, uh, I was actually with Steve Delaney, and uh, we heard these people speaking English in the in the uh, aisle next to us, and went over and introduced ourselves and started talking, and it turns out they were from the one girl was from. Oakville and these other the other guy was somewhere else in Ontario and they said oh we're having a barbecue you guys should come so we grabbed James Gravel and uh, James's brother Dave Gravel and uh, they said I'll oh, just meet us at the, at the bottom of the mountain here with your car and then we'll show you where it is so sure enough we meet up with them and they they leave to go and they just said just follow us so we follow them and we're going up and up and up in the mountains like and we're like where are we going here so we go to the top of the mountain looking down over the beach volleyball courts there's a hot tub like on the ledge of the mountain and fridge full again of red bull and drinks and they just said help yourselves and uh you know we had an awesome night and it could see the courts and it was just you know amazing experience and i remember it was john i told john child in the morning i told him the whole experience he's like i've been playing on tour for a number of years and he's like nothing like that ever happens to me and i said, <laughs> I said john that's because you keep winning so you know when we're this qualifier teams got to have a little bit of a different experience than these guys who are you know main draw teams consistently so we got to experience a little bit more yeah, and how would you kind of describe the grind, or do you ever get used to it where, like you mentioned, you're playing for a hotel, you're playing for food, you're playing for all these things, like, was it always kind of a, an uncomfortable feeling going to a tournament knowing if you don't win, that your your experience is over, like, no money, no points, that you're just you're just out? Yeah, it, it was very stressful. Like I, I remember one time we played uh, we played Hauser and Arsenal, and it was a country quota. And for those who don't know what country quota was, you know, Canada would enter or a country would enter more teams than they were allowed to have even in the main draw or into the qualifier. And you would have to play teams from your country at the tournament first. And if you lost, you were out. It was a single elimination. So you'd be flying to you know Spain or Norway to play someone who's your buddy and you see him at the beach every day but you gotta pay you know fifteen hundred dollars to go play him on a spanish beach and if you lose your weekend's over so uh it was it was really stressful and i, I remember a lot being on the court a lot thinking about it a lot because it wears on you especially when you get to that last game to qualify and i think we qualified like nine times but we probably lost the last game to get in nine or more times so it was very stressful because it was you know as soon as you qualify you have a free hotel for the next few nights for the remainder of your trip there you're getting some prize money you're getting points towards your carding and uh if you lose you get none of that and uh yeah i remember especially later on in my career i didn't it was i, I took it pretty hard it was it was hard it was uh, it was very stressful yeah, and I'm just looking again at your, your stats. It looks like in your era, Norseekas weren't either like a, a popular destination for Canadians or they just didn't happen that often where you're playing in an era of country quotas, qualifiers. Was every tournament not a double a limb? And the star system didn't exist, right? So you're either going to Opens or Grand Slams. Like it sounded like every game was probably going to be the, one of the most competitive games you've ever played, right? Yeah, it was, it was, you, there was no, and I mean, I love the star system. I think it's amazing what they have on now in FIBB, but we just didn't have that opportunity. It was either play domestically or go play internationally. And uh, like you said, the opens are the grand slams. And, uh, you know, obviously you had to play in some of the opens to qualify for the grand slams. And we were fortunate enough to do that a, a few times, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was not easy. There was no, like, you know, you, you weren't getting many easy games when, when you were there. So even in the qualifier, you know, we would play teams. A couple of times we played teams that have won FIBB events in the first round of the qualifier. So, and 
hey, we would be a fairly highly ranked team qualifier. Just it's bad luck. Let's get a bad draw. And that's the way it went. It was tough. Nice. And, and again, you've had such a great career, but when you stop playing and obviously uh, you and your wife have two kids and you've got a lot of stuff going on, is coaching still a competitive outlet for you or is that your fun way of giving back? Like, where do you find the balance of, can you ever turn off that switch of being the competitor that you've been your whole life and kind of just enjoy it? Or do you coach because you need that, that outlet? I coach because I need the outlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, this break with this quarantine is killing me. Um, and I actually just spoke to somebody the other day and was just saying, you know, the main thing for me, the hardest part about this quarantine is competition. Like, I, I, I miss it. I miss being able to compete and do things. You know, I've, I've played online poker. I've thrown darts uh, online competing against people, just trying to find something. But, you know, I, I really, that's the part I enjoy the most about coaching. And uh, for me, it is an opportunity for me to, to be with my son as well because he does play so I coach his team but uh, uh, yeah definitely competition is the my favorite part of, uh, of coaching for sure nice and obviously your wife Caroline who played at a high level of soccer so you're you're in an athletic household and anyone who's following team 12 on Instagram I, I recommend if they're not sounds like you found the hack for volleyball where when I was growing up you could always like train basketball or lacrosse I could play wall ball or hockey you could take shots but in volleyball it was really hard to play by yourself where it seems like you found a way to bounce the ball off the roof into a basketball net or you and your daughter are doing little things like is she coming up with these games are you coming up with these games like who found this hack for volleyball where you can still get reps even though you're not in a gym or or with a squad it's challenging but uh yeah if anybody's seen my instagram my uh my daughter is uh is quite the athlete and uh she is go, go, go. So she's constantly uh, doing something. Like I had to build her this morning. I had to build her a, uh, a rail so she could do rail slides for her skateboard and her <laughs> scooter. Uh, there's always something. Like I'm building her ramps. I'm building her rebounders, things these things that I'm not super handy, but I get the job done. But, uh, yeah, she's she's kind of got that competitiveness that I have, and, uh, and we kind of feed off each other and kind of come up with some, some different ideas. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice having a little somebody to play with for sure. Now, do you ever just see something in her where you're kind of like, wow, I feel bad for, for my parents now because she has so many traits where, like, can she play a board game with you and not get fired up? Like, how, how deep no. does this go, right? No, it's it's a problem. And actually, my son has it, too. <laughs> so we can't we can't do a lot of things like this, especially they can't do things together because uh, they just haven't learned to, um, you know, be able to coexist in their competitiveness. It's just a little bit too high right now so uh we got to dial it back a little bit but uh yeah it's definitely a problem and i i definitely understand i remember my dad actually saying two things one that stands out was you know he used to always say to me this isn't a gymnasium he would always say that to me in my house and i vowed to him at that time that when i had kids i would never say that to my kids and i felt pretty true to my word I, we have a lot of volleyballs and basketballs and ping pong tables and things are going on in our house but uh, there's been a few times where uh, my daughter in particular will cross the line when she's doing dunk off in her room and tearing up her, her door and things like that but uh, yeah she's a she's an active kid <laughs> <laughs> and, and awesome so with your coaching you mentioned it a couple times where maybe goal setting or seasonal planning would be something that you would have thrived on as an athlete is there anything that stands out in your mind with everything you've accomplished that you really make a point to give back to the athletes whether it's your work ethic or your competitiveness like what, what's one thing as a coach that you always make sure that if they're going to be coached by mike sleen i want them to have these traits when we're done yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I just, uh, I, I, I've always been a big believer in, in, in hard work and putting in the time. Like, you got to put in the time. you got to kind of consciously try to get better. And I think finding those athletes is, is pretty unique. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of kids in particular that, that go out there and, 
usually get better. So, you know, I try to find those kids for my team because I, I love having those kids, even if they're a little bit weaker. Technically, I know that that, that, that drive uh, will, will take over at some point. Yeah, so I just, you know, I try to instill in them that, you know, I want to work hard and, and set some goals and have some direction. And, some, you know, some of the mistakes that I made in my career and the lack of direction that we kind of had, I try to make sure that our teams have a set plan. They know what we're trying to accomplish and they know what our goals are on an individual level, but also on a team level. And, uh, yeah, try to communicate as much as possible. Awesome. I, I can't thank you again for taking all the time here. I'm just looking at the clock. We, we've taken a big chunk of your day here, and you've shared some great stories. But one thing we're, we're trying to make a tradition is just to tell a funny or odd story where you've represented Canada several times. You've played at the highest level where some funny or odd stuff has happened. So to put you on the spot, I know you've told some some great anecdotes already. Do you have a, a funny story you can leave us with just for a quick laugh? Yeah, I got a couple that, uh, you know, some are learning experiences and some are just crazy things that happen here on the road. And one that I like to tell is, you know, we were uh, in uh, Tenerife in, in Spain and, and George and I were often on different schedules with our beach. So, you know, he would go down to the court before me and he was a, a little bit of an early riser. So he said, you know, I'll just meet you at the court and kind of our way of kind of coexisting was just, you know, you do your, your thing and I'll meet you at the court. So, you know, I went outside the hotel and, and flagged uh, a cab down and, uh, no sooner do I get in the cab, but this guy gets cuts us off and pretty aggressively cuts us off. And my cab driver seems very incensed. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So he catches up to this guy, cuts this guy off, like to the point where we're almost in an accident. The other guy reciprocates by driving us into the guardrail, like just cutting us off to the point where the two cars are stopped against the guardrail. And I'm at this point in the backseat going, what is going on here? And, uh, the guy from the other car reaches under his seat and comes out of the car with this like U-shaped kind of bar thing and smashes our windshield in the in the cab. My guy reaches under the seat and starts trying to stab him with an ice pick, oh, and uh, <laughs> and the guy ends up running away. But took a few lashes from the ice pick, and he jumps back in his car and drives off. So we have to drive to the beach with a smashed windshield, and the guy's got his head out the window, and we get to the site, and I'm thinking. I, I've got to be getting this cab ride for free. This has got to be free. No, no. It was like 15 euros or whatever it was. But, you know, who was I to argue with the guy who's got an ice pick on his seat? <laughs> so I just kind of let it go and said, here's your money. And uh, went to George and said, you wouldn't believe what just happened. So, you know, things like that when you're on the road, you get a lot of those kind of stories. <laughs> now, did you settle in and could you side out? Uh, I think we were going to – actually, we, that was a practice that day. Um, but uh, I do remember that term. didn't go well. We played Cuba in the first round, and, uh, yeah, it didn't go too well. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's – yeah, you've had a few uh, situations where volleyball's provided some u- unique opportunities. Most good, but some bad by that one. But it uh, sounds like you've had a, a great, uh, great career and a great experience through our sport. Yeah, it's been fun, and it continues with coaching. It's different, but uh, still enjoying it. Awesome. Well, 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 first of all, thanks for being a listener, and I'm glad we could get you. As I mentioned, I knew you had some great stories, so it was great to put a microphone in front of you and just say, here, talk for an hour. So this was great. I can't thank you enough, and we'll have to have you back on soon. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Josh.